Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We are jumping into sections 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the Doctrine and Covenants. These touch on revelations given to the Whitmer family, 17 specifically to the three witnesses, but David Whitmer is part of that. The Whitmers come on the scene here as a family that lived not far from where Joseph and Oliver were working with the plates, and they kind of give them this refuge, so to speak. You know, Joseph and Oliver have been working on the plates for a while, and anytime they sit around in, in one location for very long, you know, Joseph Smith always starts getting opposition and people stirred up and upset with him. So now they go over to the Whitmer's uh, house and they kind of put uh, put him up for a little while so that they can finish this up. And uh, then David Whitmer, the father, and then uh, Peter and John, right? Yeah. Peter and John Whitmer. Yeah. <laughs> the two sons. They kind of ask for a revelation about what they're supposed to do. And this is interesting. We were talking about this a little before, Shiloh, about, you know, this is kind of I don't know if odd is the right word, but uh, there's certainly different ways of going about, you know, if you got a prophet standing in front of you that's like, you know, let's get revelation and then says, well, what should I do? There's different questions you could ask, right? And what should I do uh, doesn't seem to be the first question that comes to my mind when when it would be like, <laughs> okay, I can get a revelation. What revelation do I want? A, you know, official quote unquote revelation. Um, what revelation do I want from the Lord? What question would I ask? I think I might ask something different, but that doesn't matter, you know, because that's, it's not me that, that had this exact experience that's recorded here. In any case, that's what they asked, you know, what, what would be of the greatest worth for us to do? What's our duty? Um, the section heading of, of section 14 says. And, but I think that's a good thing to ponder. Like, you know, if we were in this situation of uh, David, uh, John or Peter, what might be the question that would be most pressing on our mind that we would seek a revelation from the Lord on. Sort of brings up this this question, well, why are they going to Joseph Smith for this? What is it that they feel they need to get through Joseph Smith? Why can't they just pray and get their own revelation? And I think it could be answered as, as simply as, well, the concept of personal revelation wasn't quite the same to them at this point. They they may not have quite understood that capability or had grown into that um, that understanding. And so Joseph Smith's sort of like the their stepping stone to that, just like Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim and the seer stone to sort of step into his seership and translation ability and then over a while after a while didn't need it. You know, I can see the Whitmers here seeing this opportunity to get revelation and then later in their life as they sort of grow into and learn that they really are capable of this and come to that realization, then, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to Joseph Smith for every little revelation of what should I do, right? But in any case, these these sections 
are uh, going back to, we talked about the previous time, uh, like revelation templates, right? <laughs> Where you just, you have this right. uh, template, you load it up and you insert their name in there and, and press send. <laughs> and so, the, you know, that's an interesting concept, but uh, I really do love what the Lord tells them here. And, it, and it's very simple, but there's a lot of uh, depth to it. It really touches on what we, a theme, probably one of the central themes that we've talked about in all of these podcasts, and that's of repentance, uh, specifically declaring repentance, which maybe I'm getting a little bit too pedantic, like I've said before on this, but it seems like declaring repentance might be a little bit different type of thing than calling people to repentance. I kind of look at declaring repentance as more of like an invitation to, as we've said, see God in a new way, understand him in a way that you haven't before, open your eyes to that reality. Whereas like calling to repentance is like, hey, you've done A, B, C wrong, and you need to do X, Y, Z to fix it. So an invitation versus an admonition. And so I kind of like how it's phrased here with declaring repentance. It, it frames that concept of repentance in, in a little bit different way in the way that we've been when been discussing it mostly in, the, in these podcasts lately. Section 17 gets in here to the uh, three witnesses that were called to witness of, see the gold plates, and then you know write their witness of them. And as we've mentioned before, these three men that were called and to do this and had this experience, they never did say, I just made it all up, or maybe I was just imagining something, or, you know, Joseph Smith must have slipped something into my coffee that morning or something like that. You know, <laughs> they all emphatically to the last day of their lives insisted that this really was an accurate experience that they had and, and corroborated each other's um, experience with it. So, that's something that's very difficult to uh, wrestle with from the standpoint of of the critics of the Book of Mormon. I think I think they they do try to handle it in, in multiple ways, but uh, it's a pretty solid thing, if you ask me. Yeah, the three witnesses are a very fascinating conversation, and I, I know I really liked what you were saying about section fourteen there with individual duty, and that's something I've been thinking a lot about too, specifically about this idea of doing our duty. So the idea of what a duty is, and this has been a very prominent theme throughout the Restored Gospel. It actually became much more prominent kind of post-World War II generation in church leadership, especially because in war culture, you are you don't ask questions. Duty and honor. It's just duty and honor, right? If someone tells you to do something, you just do it. And you don't really ask questions, you trust what's going on, and you trust that you don't have enough information to be able to make a moral assertion whether or not you should or you shouldn't do it, so you just do it because that's how the whole system functions. And if you don't function according to that system, everything comes crashing down like a house of cards. And so in that kind of way of the social apparatus of America operating, there's that heavy influence that comes into the way that they talk. And so there is an influx of this concept of duty. Since that World War II generation church leadership has died off, that concept of duty isn't talked about almost at all anymore. Hmm. And so it's really interesting kind of from a social perspective to see how social pressures can actually affect the ideas and of how we're talking about these things. And in talking about a duty, you know, Ben and I, you and I have talked about this idea of obedience and the source of obedience 
two different experiences, you know, going back to missionary stories. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. My missionary experience was that, and I've expressed it before, when I was on my mission, they said we had more cars than any other mission and that we had fewer accidents per capita. And I, I cannot verify that. I don't know. That's not important <laughs> to the story. But when I asked Mike, okay, well, what do we do different? The response that I got from my missionary companion and I got from the APs that were in my apartment, all independently, all three people independently said, well, we just love president and he loves us. And I didn't get that. I didn't get that at first. And it wasn't until I met him. I, I, you know, I, I, was, I met him when I first came in, but when I very first got out there and I was able to sit down and actually see him talk at his own conference and, and really see who he was and to feel that love from him. The first time that I saw him come into like to that room, into that office and, and just as he was, I was like, Oh, I get it. We love president. I get it. And that became the source of the motivation for their action was because they were motivated by love, not to disappoint. They weren't afraid of disappointing him. They weren't afraid of letting him down. It was just this, this love was motivating him to act. And so they just, they acted and that's how it went. But I've also heard other stories of missionaries going out who have a different attitude pertaining to obedience. And this attitude is taught with a type of expectation of holding God's feet to the fire. It's like, if you are strict and absolute in everything that you do, then you can expect God to bless you exactly for your labors. And God says that you can, he's bound when you do what he says. Mm -hmm. And there's a completely different spirit between these two things. There's a completely different motivation behind the two things. One is just this swell of love that moves into action. And it's just, it's motivated and obedience is just this beauty that you live. Whereas on the other side of that flip coin, the exactness without that in motivation of love becomes an expectation for blessings. And that if you do everything right, the equation's going to be balanced and God's going to do everything on his side as if, and this has set up some really bad cultural theology about how we view God. Mm -hmm. Because we start to see God in this transactional way. I do this. God does this. That's the way it works. Yeah. Very formulaic. It is very formulaic, and we begin to see God not as a loving Father who is always there for us, always with us, always present with us, always His entire work and glory is us. We take this thing that God wouldn't bless us, except if we if we we did this, but <laughs> this this attitude that we have to hold God's feet to the fire as if He wouldn't bless us already I, is so bizarre to me, and it gets more bizarre the older I get. And yet there is this attitude that pervades in the culture of doing your duty as a method of obedience so God blesses you. It's very transactional. It's very formulaic. It's very one plus one equals two, and that's it. And I know the gospel works well for, the, for, for some people that way. And so I, I don't want to talk down about it, but at the same time, we also want to try to lift the conversation up to be able to say there's something else there too. There is a way to live and to be obedient when obedience really isn't even a thing. You just act from this inner source of love and something, and it just, everything emanates from that. The reason I'm bringing this up is when we go here to section 14 and it says that they asked Joseph pertaining to their individual duty, 
One of the things that I'm doing with the Doctrine and Covenants this year is I'm trying to find clues to the type of people these were based on the questions they're asking mm-hmm. and the responses they're getting. And assuming, because a lot of the times I've read these things, I went to, you know, I was a seminary graduate. <laughs> I tried to stay awake and, you know, I taught seminary for a while. You taught seminary for a while. I like reading the scriptures. It's a part of my life. And so I have to realize that the scriptures, I, I already know the answers. And so a lot of the time in going back to section 14 and 15 and, and 16 and 17, I, I already know what the answers are. And then I try to look at them as though they already know the answers as well. Like, like God was just giving them answers they already knew. Mm-hmm. But I've got to wipe myself clean of those thoughts and realize, no, 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 no. Country farmers, pious, good, honest people wanting to do what's right. Don't, and, and I love what you said, Ben, about maybe they aren't fully enveloped in this idea that they can get personal revelation. A member of the church, three years old, you're taught, get on your knees. Joseph Smith did it. He got an answer from God. I mean, God literally came down and showed himself. <laughs> you got a question? God's got an answer kind of a thing. But in this, they don't have that context. And so then we start getting clues. So these people don't know they can get their own answers. They don't know that they can petition God for their own, for the, for their own relationship here. And then when you, when you study kind of the American, you know, religious ideas that were existing at the time, God's not coming out with any new thing, right? He's not coming down. At best, he's just going to come one last time, destroy all the wicked and then reign supreme. That, that's pretty much the best you got as far as God's relationship to man. But here we have these people saying, they're not asking God, how do I sit with you? How do I come into your presence? How do I let this ego go? I mean, Freud hasn't even been around. We don't even have an ego yet, right? <laughs> so in these moments, it, they don't even know to ask these questions. But the question they do know how to ask is, what should I do? And so we pay attention to the answers. And now you and I have gone over these answers a dozen times because it, you're right, it's, a, it's like a template. And now why is it a template though? It's because they were all asking the same questions, because they were all in the same time frame, the same groups, the same era, the, the, the same kind of Christian milieu. They were wondering what they should do. That was the question they were asking. Today, the question of being able to sit with God, God, how do I sit with you? How do I come into your presence? How do I experience your awe? How do I experience your grace? Those are questions I'm seeing more and more and more now. But in their day, it's a different kind of question. It's a different pressure. So with them, they're talking about this, what do I do? And God comes down and he says, by the way, something marvelous is about to happen. And well, what an amazing thing for God to open up with. It's like, what should I do? And God's like, okay, you need to sit down for this. <laughs> something amazing is about to happen. And you're like, what? And then he comes out with a second punch and he's like, I am God. Give heed to my word, which is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, we've talked about the two-edged sword a lot. Mm-hmm. But then they immediately move into this, this analogy of the field is white. And it's like, Lord, what do I do? And God's like, this is wondrous. This is awesome. Let me show you just exact. And it's like this unfolding of how this is going to spread and go forward. It's almost like, let me invite you into this conversation and this experience of the unfolding of everything I'm going to do. And if you want to be a part of it, come on, come be a part of it. 
And then he's like, and look just how much everything, I prepared everything for you. If you want to come in, it's already white. I've already prepared it for you. And if you ask me, if you ask me, if you will knock, it will be opened unto you. Right there, verse 5 and 14. They didn't know the same thing. I mean, this is a nuanced idea to Joseph Smith, right? He doesn't know that he could go pray. He had never even vocally tried to pray like that before in his life. That was the first time he tried to do it when he had the first vision. So these people, this is, this is a new thing coming out. And God's like, this is wondrous. This is awesome. This is wonderful. I'm doing this and I invite you into what I'm doing. And then that verse six, seek to bring forth and establish my Zion and keep my commandments in all things. And it's like that invitation to be something greater than yourself. Now, Ben, you and I were talking here in verse seven, this endure to the end. Mm. You know, we've heard this a thousand times and this has been a really big thing, but you had something to say about this. Um, you'd looked up endure to the end. And if I try to re- rehash what you said, I'm going to, I'm just going <laughs> to pollute the whole thing. So, so tell us again, what, uh, what you had to say about enduring to the end. Yeah. I was looking over the scripture, you know, this is, this phrase is used so much in Latter-day Saint doctrinal discussion. You know, Nephi talks about this all over the place. So it's it's in the Book of Mormon commonly. Here we have it in section 14. And what does this really mean? You know, everybody kind of has to ask themselves this question. I, I posted in one of the Facebook groups this question, you know, because I was just really curious Almost like a poll, like, hey, what do, what do Latter-day Saints generally think this phrase means? And I know, like, in my mind, it's just this concept of, like, okay, you know, you you do all the, the ordinances. Once you've got all the check boxes off, then there's this last, you know, it's like you did all the multiple choice of the test, and now it's the essay, you know? And you have to, like, write the essay until the teacher, you know, rings the bell, Right. And as long as you're writing when she rings the bell, then you're good. <laughs> and, and you know, this endure to the end, right? You have to keep, you have to always be working, you know, all the way to the end. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that concept, except this, except that it does perpetuate a culture of us working our way to heaven, Right. It's what um, it's what we get criticized often from mainstream Christianity or born again Christians about. You know that we we believe that we can be saved by our works. That we don't believe we can be saved by grace. And I'm understanding more and more where that idea comes from. That that's what Mormons believe, because frankly, there are quite a few that do. Yeah, it's actually a legitimate criticism. Yeah, it's a legitimate criticism. And, and at the time, I didn't, you know, think it was a legitimate criticism. I thought, no, 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 we believe we're being saved by grace. And, and, uh, you know, we jump through all these hoops to, to say that's, that's what we really believe. And, and all the scriptures, all of our scriptures say, you know, that we do believe we're being saved by grace. But then when it comes down to it, when we get to phrases like this endure to the end, then, uh, we just start talking about works again. Right. And it's like, no, guys, <laughs> that's, you're, <laughs> you're out into the weeds again. Right. I was pondering over this phrase here, and I thought there's really something more here than than just that, right? I went and looked up the word endure in the Webster 1828 dictionary, which is basically it's the time of Joseph Smith. It's the very it's the year before section 14 was received, right? So this is the contemporary meaning of the word endure. 
Now, I haven't looked it up in today's dictionary, so maybe the meaning hasn't changed. So, But that's not the point. <laughs> Webster's 1828 dictionary lists a bunch of different um, explanations and definitions and contexts for this word endure. Now, the interesting thing about it is so much of the context of them are actually scripture. right? So it's got like different um, verses from the Bible that use this word endure in context. So I thought, oh, this is very interesting. This word endure in 1828 is is very steeped in religion. This isn't just a, you know, a secular word. This is used most commonly in religious context. And so one of these here I thought was a really fascinating definition of endure. It says, to suffer without resistance or without yielding. I'm going to say that again. To suffer without resistance or without yielding. This made me think about how we often frame the discussion of nonviolence or how I've preferred to to refer to it as as testimony. I think that strikes a little bit more at what it is rather than the word nonviolence, which is used so much as what it isn't, right? But obviously there's still linguistic issues with that. You know, endure here says that it's it's not resisting and it's not yielding. And I think this is a, a an interesting way of positing this concept because so often we are presented with a choice. Our perception is that our choice to any sort of opposition is that we must either resist it or we must yield to it. And not just opposition, you know, persecution or whatever. If we want to get, you know, beatitude about this, you know, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This enduring is neither resisting nor yielding. It's something else. It's a different way. And what I think is so interesting about it is because when Nephi talks about this and he says, enter in at the way, and the way is Christ. And then he says, you repent and you're baptized. That's the experience that you go through in entering into the way of Christ and then endure to the end. The way of Christ is something that's neither resisting nor yielding. It's the way of testimony. You don't fight back or resist that persecution, but you also don't yield to it. That's really uh, profound to me. And I'm still thinking this over and about that concept. I'm really looking at that phrase, endure to the end, in a a little bit different way. And I think that it's heavily steeped in that beatitude-ness, especially that final beatitude, right, of of blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That brings up imagery to me of that enduring to the end. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, in uh, Matthew 5, I think it's 39, when he talks about not resisting evil, that, that you resist not evil. Yeah. And that resisting not evil has everything to do with not responding in kind. We talked about the war chapters when we did the war chapters. There were uh, two segments uh, there about how Section 98 calls upon us to endure the punishments and the, the inhumanities that are leaped upon us. Another thing that came to mind was Jacob 1.8. When it says that we would to God that we would persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ, view his death, and suffer his cross, 
and to bear the shame of the world. That's where I, when you had brought that up about enduring as not resisting, but not acquiescing either, it's this middle ground that Christ follows. And it's usually the path of martyrdom. It's that we're called to do for each other in finite and temporal ways what Christ has done for us in eternal and infinite ways. That if we're going to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, we're going to be found doing the things that Christ did. And he actively marched himself to the cross. It's like one of the primary points of the book of Mark was that when Jesus could have zigged, he zagged on his way to the cross. If he could have done something to save his life, he did something that was going to march him to the cross. He intentionally had that eternal view that he was not scared of what was going to happen. She didn't shy away from it. There were things, you know, when Elder Holland talks about Jesus and the atonement, you know, he kind of paints this picture that maybe Jesus wasn't really completely prepared for what was about ready to happen, but that he was willing anyway. And so it's that kind of humility that brings into that moment of being able to endure that I thought was absolutely brilliant when, when you'd brought that up. The next thing that I was thinking about in verse section, or rather in section 14, was when Christ comes along and he's, he tells us to stand as a witness. And witness, as we've covered before, comes back to the same Greek root as martyrdom, as martyr. It, you know, the, the root there is matero. It's, it's that those who stand as a witness also stand as a martyr because they're taking upon themselves the name of Christ and they're doing what Christ does. So when we take this whole endure to the end and stand as a witness, those two things joined together really tell a completely different story than what we, we typically pull out of this. But then I love a lot there in verse 9. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who created the heavens and the earth, a light which cannot be hid in the darkness. Wherefore, I must bring forth the fullness of my gospel from the Gentiles into the house of Israel. Jesus isn't saying, you are doing this. He's saying, I am doing this. This is, I am Jesus Christ. This is my work, and I must do this. And so this goes back to that idea of invitation. And I liked what you said about invitation there, about repentance. He's inviting us into this new way of being. He starts off with this marvelous work, this, this wondrous, marvelous thing that's about ready to happen. You don't even understand what this is about ready to happen. And it is quick. It's powerful. The imagery of the sword. I have prepared everything. And if you want to join in, it's already prepared for you. From here on out, if you want anything from me, ask me directly. Come to me. I will give you everything. And what we're going to do with this is we are about ready to build the kingdom of God. We're going to build Zion how do we do that? Well, it's through these commandments. And what are these commandments? These are the blueprints. It's the Beatitudes. These are the blueprints to the way that I am. This is who I am, and this is how you can be who I am. And how do we do that? We endure. We don't resist. We don't give in. We walk a different path. And that path walks to the cross, the self-sacrificial lamb that all people who take upon themselves the name of Christ must walk. And so when we come into the Father with the Holy Ghost, it gives us utterance and we're able to stand as a witness to stand in that place that Christ would stand if he were there. And all the while recognizing this is not our work. We are not in this for ourselves to entertain our own egos. This is Jesus Christ's work. And we are assisting him in his work.
I like what you brought up there about the assisting. You know, we talked about that last time. And I think that it flows really well here with this verse. He says, I must bring forth, just like you were saying. And then the next verse is, and David, if you want to assist, that's what you're called to do. And I'm going to bring you into that and you can be part of it as well. And so I I do like how that, that jumps right into the assist part. Verse nine, I've always loved the concept, the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Also like this reformulation of that concept here, a light which cannot be hid in darkness. And I kind of like how this applies to the endure thing, you know, not resisting and not yielding, because that's what light does. Like it doesn't resist or yield to darkness. It just is, right? And darkness can't hide it. It can't extinguish it. It's impossible for it to do that. Light just is. And light doesn't, you know, attack darkness, right? You know, it doesn't resist it. It just exists and darkness can't be where it is. So I I love the tying of those concepts there as well. Yeah. And with, I I love that you pull that out with verse nine too, because when the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not, that really comes into this idea of our, that the light of Christ, that God's light, that that whole thing that is God is always around us. Everything testifies that there is a God. And we, through that false self, have those scales over our eyes. We see through, we see through a glass darkly. We can't see the light. Repentance is the removing of these scales from our eyes to seeing what we always have always, already have always been, right? You know, my wife had brought up to me, uh, we, we were talking about Michelangelo. You know, she'd been studying some some European history, and Michelangelo came up, and we started talking about his sculptures. And I, I've realized later in my adult life, as I've grown older, that marble sculptures and like and like those those Renaissance sculptures and uh, and even Greek and Roman sculptures, they they speak to me in a really weird way, <laughs> and in such a way that when when I see one, and and where I live in Bakersfield, California. The Getty has a, a a via down there where they have a lot of sculptures and paintings and artifacts from antiquity, from Greek and Roman antiquity that I've gone down to a bunch of times. And whenever I come in and I see these sculptures, it just, it speaks to me in a way where I'm like, wow, I just, I can't imagine what it's like to, to, to be able to carve that out out of a single piece of stone and to be able to put that kind of emotion into stone. And I love that a lot. And Michelangelo, when he was talking about how he sculpted, he said that he was able to see what was there already before he even started. And all he was doing, chip by chip and piece by piece, is he was breaking loose everything that wasn't to reveal what always was underneath. And I thought, man, what a beautiful analogy of the false self, true self. And then I learned, because I haven't been to Florence, but David, you know, the magnificent statue of David, the famous um, sculpture at 14 feet tall of David, it's, it's on display in Florence. And I did not know this, but in the hallway leading up to David is called the Hall of Prisoners. And what it is, is there are several sculptures for Michelangelo that were unfinished. When he would take a block of stone, he would car- usually carve out the torso first, and then he would work his way out to the extremities of the body. And so what this hall of prisoners is, is that it lines both sides of the hallway leading up to, to David, where you see 
these human figures that have not truly been cut away from the stone. So they're like halfway still encapsulated, and some of them are are carved away more than others, but these are just unfinished sculptures that Michelangelo was never able to do. So with this idea that he had of being able to carve away that which wasn't to reveal that which was always already underneath, they call these prisoners because they're forever Mm. encapsulated in stone leading up to David this 14-foot mm. beautiful thing. And the imagery there is just astounding because wow. you begin to realize that you have these these half-finished sculptures that really reflect this whole true self, false self way of being, where we are always that true self underneath all of the facade. And God is that which carves out the false self and helps us reveal and connect with what we've always already been underneath the whole time. And how we're prisoners to that. So yeah, when when we're going through and reading this, I love how Jesus says it in this time. It's not that the darkness shineth, the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not, like you had you had talked about, Ben. But this one is more of a universalist idea. Where Jesus is coming down here, he's saying, I am the light which can never be hid in darkness. This is a far more transcendent way of putting this because the whole light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not kind of invokes this idea that there is going to be people who see darkly and will never see the light. This is Jesus proclaiming, I am that which the darkness can never dispel. And it's like this universalist approach of God coming in and saying, I'm here for all of my children. I'm here for all of my children. It's a beautiful way of looking at it. Yeah, a couple thoughts that I've written down here on that. One relating to this uh, sculpture concept, which I had heard Michelangelo heard. <laughs> I had read <laughs> uh, Michelangelo say something to that effect that, you know, the the sculpture was actually already there in the marble. All he had to do was remove the parts that didn't belong. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, a witty way of putting it. But it, but it does bring out that concept of, you know what, that's not incorrect. It, it really was already there. And it was just a matter of, of getting these things out of the way that were obscuring our view of what it really was. And this goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning of the podcast about how like, um, and I don't know if this is what you were saying, but this is what I was thinking when you were saying whatever you were saying. <laughs> but it, it, it's it's how people view blessings in their life, right? That they pray for a blessing and then they receive that blessing. But if they hadn't prayed for the blessing, would they have still received the blessing? And, you know, there's always this question, oh, well, well then does God really want to give you blessings or is it just this transactional thing? And I've come to a a new way of of seeing this that I believe really opens up um, an understanding of it and and is very consistent and goes along with this concept of, you know, the marble or or the sculpture already being in the marble, we just have to get rid of things that are away. And it's that, you know, blessings aren't so much received as they are realized, right? And and that what, what it is that we do in terms of repenting and seeing God is that our eyes are opened to the blessings that already exist and are happening to us all the time. And rather than, you know, it's just this, it's a perception thing. Like the blessings were always coming. We were always technically receiving them. We just didn't have the eyes to see them. 
that's what repentance does is it opens up our eyes to see what's already there. Just like removing the the marble opens up our view to see what's already there. Yeah, right? I, I, I love that way of being able to look at the gospel because it makes it, for, for me, it makes it so much more accessible to realize that a lot of these emotions that I feel like shame and guilt and, and those things that really detract from, you know, we craft narratives around shame and guilt as though that's like the divine feeling, right? That, that's from God to feel shame and guilt. And so when we teach these narratives, it puts us into a category of needing to feel that as, as if that is the gateway into feeling God's grace. But this goes back to what we were saying, like with the two, the two missionary experiences. When God comes down and we actually touch God and his love, there's no shame there. There's no guilt there. And we are all sinners. We will never touch God's love and have God's love come into us while we are completely free from sin. We, it's just, it's an impossibility. This life, we come to this life and we're always going to be creatures of sin. That's just the way it goes. But the whole idea is that God touches us at our weakest place. That's where the love grows. And when we become motivated by God's love, that's when all of a sudden obedience becomes this celestial manifestation of just what we experience with God not this rudimentary checklist that we have to check off and expect that God's going to do one thing or another. So, yeah, I like that a lot. You know, moving into section 15 uh, and 16, these are basically the same blessings. One's given to John Whitmer, one's given to Peter Whitmer. And we can do a lot to say, well, it's just, you know, the same template right here. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that it says here in verse, basically the, the Lord, I'll go ahead and read uh, section 15. Hearken my servant John, and listen to the words of Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Redeemer. I like the way that starts off. Man, if, if I had a revelation given to me that started off that way, that would be pretty amazing. For behold, I speak unto you with sharpness and with power, for mine arm is over all the earth. Hmm. I will tell you that which no man knoweth, save me and thee alone. For many times you have desired of me to know that which would be the most worth unto you. Ooh, there's a different question. That's the different question, right? One is to ask here about our individual duty. Here we have that which would be of most worth unto you. Behold, blessed are you for this thing, for speaking my words which I have given unto you according to my commandments. And now behold, I say unto you that the thing which will be of most worth unto you will be to declare repentance into this, into this people that you may bring souls unto me that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. Man, what a, what a completely new experience. Lord, what would be the most worth that I could be? What's that in which would be the most worthy? Right? And most worth unto you. It's not, it's not his own selfish desire. He's not looking for what's his own selfish desire. Lord, he already presupposes, I want to be involved. I want to be able to be involved in your work. And the Lord, he comes along and the thing he says, declare repentance. Teach people to see me differently. Help people see me anew. You know, when you put it in those words, what an awesome mission. What an awesome thing to be a part of. 
You know, then in Peter Whitmer, it's basically the same thing. He's also declared to declare repentance unto this people. And so when we start to realize that when many are called but few are chosen, and those that aren't chosen, like the DNC says, is because they put too much emphasis on the things of this world. We don't look with an eternal view. We can't see past the the here and now. And and so it's this hard thing because Jesus ends up saying, hey, listen, don't take any thought for the morrow. But at the same time, it's like if we become too short-sighted, then and we don't see the and we don't see this end then we end up missing a few things. And and how I've reconciled that for myself is that living in the present is clearing oneself from one's ego and from all of those layers and layers of identity that create false expectations. And in that cleansing and in that being present with the present, like Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, then when we start to look above and beyond ourselves, and we, you know, we can look into tomorrow or we can look into the a year from now or a thousand years from now, we are already at peace. We've already emptied. And that's when that whole knowing the end and being able to look with an eternal view actually becomes meaningful because we are calm in the here and now. It's like what President Nelson said when he was going down in that plane. He thought he was going to die. He thought that was it. He was going to meet his maker. His eternity was set. But in the here and now, he was at complete peace. But he also knew his eternity because he had that eternal view because of his temporal peace, his or his immediate peace. His eternal view is also set as well. It's a, it's a beautiful relationship between the two. But if we put and if we try to work on the eternal view before we work on the personal here and now, we never really get the peace that comes from that can really come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I really I really like how that fits in with this. You know, verse five is standing out to me more than it has before in this. I, the the phrase "blessed are you," you know that 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 just screams beatitudes at me again here. <laughs> but um, it also evokes uh, the conversation that Christ has with the twelve disciples that he calls among the Nephites, because he goes to them and he says, "What do you desire of me?" Right, and he asks each of them, and it's interesting because. Nine of them all ask the same thing. They all have the same question. And here we have John and Peter have the same question, which that's interesting. John and Peter are, are uh, apostle names. But anyway, <laughs> but the, you know, the nine of the 12 Nephite disciples have the same question for Christ. And it's when we finished our work, let us come to you in your kingdom. And then he says, blessed are you for this thing that you have desired. Okay. And, and so there's no, there's no like, ah, you know, you guys, you could have had something better, but okay. <laughs> you know, like, you asked the wrong question. You know, it's, there's no, you asked the wrong question. It's blessed are you for asking that question. Thank you for asking that question. Here's the answer to that question. We talked at the beginning here about, well, you know, I might have asked a different question, but that doesn't matter. This is the question they wanted, and the Lord is pleased with them for asking it. He gives them the answer. He says, blessed are you for asking this question. Here's the answer. Here's what you're going to to receive. So I like that. That's kind of what it reminded me of there. Again, back to the beginning uh, where you were talking about how uh, when we look at Revelation, it's really helpful for us to to say, well, what was the question here? And that's what Joseph Smith said. He said, one of the grand keys to understanding Revelation in the scriptures is, what was the question that elicited this revelation? 
And then it makes a lot more sense why we have what we have and why we don't have what we don't have. <laughs> right. And, and so we read these sections here and we think, okay, you know, those are really cool, but I feel like there could have been more there. And it's like, right, but this was the question they asked and they got the full answer to their question. So then you, reader, what question do you ask the Lord? And really that is, um, we ask the questions that we're ready to receive the answers for. And, uh, you know, I look at the three Nephites that asked a different question because they were ready to receive a different answer. And as we progress, so to speak, in the Doctrine and Covenants, we see Joseph Smith asking different questions and other people asking different questions. And so it's always fascinating how the Lord answers those questions, all dependent on what it is that we ask. He's condescending. He's giving us all knowledge and understanding in our weakness according to our language. Yeah, that's so great. You know, we've talked a lot about questions and about how <laughs> we're both kind of in that stage where it's like asking a really good question is better than any answer we can get. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I got a good question. As we move into section 17, you know, this talks about the three witnesses. And I think there is a, a story that is not told sufficient. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in church history, but it's, it's one of those that's not very well known. And it's a little bit of a church trivia question, and it goes something like this. Who was the first person to see the gold plates after Joseph Smith? You mean besides Moroni? Oh, besides Moroni. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who was the first mortal? Okay, let's get the first this mortal. Precise. Well, you know, let, let's get this question narrowed down really. <laughs> and the answer may surprise a few people, but when Joseph and his wife, and when Joseph and Emma and Oliver had gone from Harmony, Pennsylvania to Fayette, New York, where the where the Whitmers were living, Mary Whitmer, the mother, had been toiling for weeks and it was a hot summer it was it, the the summer of 1829 was an exceedingly hot summer we're told and i've been there to the whitmer home i've been inside and they have an indoor kitchen with a big hearth it gets hot and for all the trees that they may or may not have had it still gets hot and you know with big long dresses it just it, the work is difficult it was just difficult. That's why you had summer kitchens, because... A lot of people did have summer kitchens. kitchens. That, that was yeah. very much a luxury, too. Yeah. And, and some people didn't have those, and I don't think the Whitmers didn't have that. And so it just happened to be that on one day, Mary Whitmer was kind of at her wit's end. She was cooking for so many people. Joseph being there with Oliver translating and Emma and, and all these new people had also been a magnet for others traveling around. So she had started to prepare and have food for... People, she had no idea who they were, and they were just coming into the home. Till finally one day that she had gone into the backyard, and there was a, a little outbuilding in the back. She went behind, and then a little bit beyond there was the forest. And if anybody's ever been there, they, they know the forest in mind. And she went out to the back of the building. She put her back up against the building, sunk down, kind of putting her, her face between her legs and just kind of sobbing, just being at her wit's end. And a man comes out from... The forest area comes her in with a knapsack on his hand, addresses her, and it's the most amazing story in the entire world. I remember reading this for the first time, thinking, "What? Wh why have I? Why have I never heard this story before?" 
So she's out behind her barn where they were milking the cows and a gray-haired man, and so now I'm reading from Saints on page 70, a gray-haired man with a knapsack slung across his shoulder. His sudden appearance frightened her, but as he approached, he spoke to her in a kind voice that set her at ease. My name is Moroni, he said. You have become pretty tired with all the extra work that you've had to do. He swung the the knapsack off of his shoulder and Mary watched as he started to untie it. You've been very faithful and diligent in your labors, he continued. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that you may have faith to be strengthened. Moroni then opened his knapsack, removed the gold plates. He held them in front of her and turned the pages so she could see the writings on them all. After he turned the last page, he urged her to be patient, to be faithful, as she carried out the extra burden a little bit longer. He promised she would be blessed for it. The old man vanished in a moment later, leaving Mary alone. She still had work to do, but it no longer troubled her. Hmm. It's absolutely amazing. The very first person to see the gold plates was this wonderful woman who, by all accounts, I've never read any accounts, and maybe there are some, she didn't have any holding out hope to sing the plates. She wasn't in quite, we know Martin Harris had wanted to see the plates. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's his number one MO. He's like, I want to see the plates. He's like, Joseph, can I see the plates? <laughs> He's like, no, I already gave you pages. He's like, I know I lost those, Joseph, but can I see the plates still? And Joseph's like, let me go ask God. And he's like, I gotta go ask God about you again. So Martin Harris has wanted to see these things. And, and Oliver, and then David Whitmer will be one. But Mary Whitmer saw them first. Moroni brought them to her and unfolded them to her and showed them to her as a way of encouraging her faith. And I think what impresses me so much about this as well is the simplicity of this story, is that she wasn't petitioning for it. She didn't need it. She wasn't going after it. It just happened, and then it was over. And and she's just there. And she's like, if that would have happened to me, I would have been like, what just what just happened? Right? Why here, dude? What was that? Did you see that? <laughs> Why here, guy comes out out of nowhere? Plops it down, smiley, friendly, pulls these things out, shows it to me, puts it back in his knapsack, and just kind of takes off. But to realize that the Lord showed her and allowed this to happen for his own purpose, whatever this purpose was. But how amazing that these other three men clamoring to see the plates, and the Lord's like, fine, I'll show them to you. But for Mary, it was just by the grace that she was able to see it, and I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I remember that story now from Saints. It's been a little while since uh, I've read that. And I had heard that she had seen them before, but I hadn't heard the details of the story there. So that is very interesting that she received that sort of that private witness, right, before this official, quote unquote, official three witnesses that, that wrote down their testimony. And I think that, that to show this concept that we do... Uh, explicitly believe in a Latter-day Saint doctrine or the doctrine of the church that, you know, everyone has the capability of receiving personal revelation. They can know these things for themselves. They can, you know, Joseph Smith some, said something to the effect of, you know, I haven't received any revelation that uh, every saint couldn't receive for himself if he were were but willing to receive it. Like I said, we explicitly believe this, right? This is a quote-unquote doctrine, but whether we all implicitly believe it is is kind of another matter. Whether I personally believe it, obviously, you know, is, is really another matter. <laughs> but this story, I think, speaks to that concept that, yes, the Lord chose these three witnesses to be official witnesses to record their testimony, but that 
didn't mean that um, other people couldn't receive that that witness and that blessing when they were willing and and prepared and and needed to have it. Yeah, I like that point a lot because it really goes to show that the openness that God is willing to have that it's it's I think it comes down to the heart. It comes down to the heart of of how we approach God and the intentionality that we approach God with. That if we're looking for that you know, God kind of put those people off who were looking for it for a while. He definitely put Martin Harris off for a while, right? Hmm. And and there was a lot of repentance that Martin Harris had to go through um, in supplication and all sorts of, e- you know, leaving his ego behind. But as we go into section 17, I think it's fascinating there in the first verse what the Lord is willing to show them. And kind of asking them what they want to see. Mm-hmm. Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates. And also of the breastplate and the sword of Laman and the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked to the Lord face to face, and with the miraculous directors which were given to Lehi well in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> like all those things I'm like all those I'm like why those things I'm like, I'm like, i I yeah. get it but but why these things it's like and the lord's like hey you want to see some holy relics <laughs> you want to see some cool stuff he and he to- opens up his trunk <laughs> and he's like check it <laughs> and, and everybody's like yeah i want to see some cool stuff i mean i mean come on yeah who wouldn't <laughs> i mean even we were talking about laughing about this last week that even my non-violent streak i'm like you want to see the sword of laban and i'm like Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> of course I do. That's kind of a I would like to chop a pumpkin in half with the sword of Laban, okay? <laughs> can I do like that plastic bottle challenge where like five plastic bottles in a row and I like cut them all in half? Can I can I do that in slow motion cuz that'd make a great video, you know? Right. It's just something really interesting, you know. It is. And I wonder if there's more significance to this. Because we know the sword of Laban is symbolic in the Book of Mormon. We do know that it has a symbolic role in the story because it features prominently throughout the narrative. We also know that the Urim and Thummim, which made its way all the way from the brother of Jared all the way through to Joseph Smith, had been preserved for a pretty spectacular purpose. I mean, Joseph had already infused his own seer stone with some pretty amazing capabilities, or at least it allowed him to focus innate qualities and capabilities that he already had, however that worked. But to be able to pass down these spectacles from, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, that's really amazing. And so the breastplate, the sword of Laban, and then the, the, the Liahona. Why these things? You know, the Sword of Laban really does stand at the front of the Book of Mormon. It's the first murder committed in the Book of Mormon. You know, Lehi is commanded to leave. His family leaves. Nephi comes back. Nephi is the first murderer in the Book of Mormon. Now, he's, he's not a murderer in the sense that a lot of us say, but there's a, uh, I love him dearly in, in my ward. He's an attorney. And I remember him standing up in a gospel doctrine. He's like, listen, here's the honest truth. I couldn't defend Nephi in a court of law and win. <laughs> and and so he went off on all this this whole thing about how he he it just that that, <laughs> that wouldn't have worked and uh, you know and maybe there's some nuance with an American judicial system versus a Jewish one but you know because there were some things that Laban did that uh, that Nephi had recourse for but recourse with his own sword or versus did he have to go through some kind of trial system right for for that to apply for the law to apply to him we don't I I don't know I guess people do know I don't personally know but. 
here we have the sort of Laban factoring in the violent narrative. And it's really, I, I, I've always imagined Laman and Lemuel looking at Nephi coming back with that sword and Laban's garments and, well, Zoram. I mean, he came back with Zoram. You know, that's kind of an interesting appendage when he comes in with Zoram. But to be there with the, the, the sword and to tell the story. Can you imagine being Laman and Lemuel and the, what they would say to Nephi of basically saying, well, at least we haven't killed anybody. We've threatened to, but really, you're the only one who's ever gone through with it. And and having that frame this narrative in the Book of Mormon, and it features the violence that comes about between the Nephite split and the Lamanite split, all symbolic through this sword, is huge. And so to see the Urim and Thummim as the seer stones, and to see the the ball of faith, you know, the the director of faith with the sword and all the juxtapositions of this. I don't necessarily know if, if these were chosen at random so much as there's another story here that I I just don't have enough evidence to try to piece it together. Yeah, there could be some backstory to this. It could be as simple as, hey, these guys know what the Book of Mormon says and they think the Sword of Laban's really cool. So Lord, they kind of want to see that. Um, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. It's like, <laughs> so I know we don't normally do this, but I kind of have a list of things they want to see. <laughs> and so, um, or it could be, you know, something as far as like, these were, these were the things that Moroni was in charge of. Right. And so they all existed together. And so even though, you know, there were some that were important for Joseph Smith to have and others that, that weren't, he ended up getting all of them anyway, or seeing all of them because they were all part of that. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't really know why, why it's significant that, that all of these quote unquote relics and, and these are Latter-day Saint tradition. We don't really deal with religious relics, right? That's kind of a, that's kind of foreign to our typical understanding and, and culture. But it's very prominent in, say, like the Catholic religion to have these types of relics that have very spiritual and religious significance to them and kind of are seen as imbued with spiritual power. And so, at least to the sensibilities of these 19th century men, this might have been significant spiritual experience to be able to see these things, these physical things because of a, a spiritual experience, even though we don't we don't necessarily view it that way with our current culture. Again, that, that might have been significant for them. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, these things aren't paraded around. Not that the sort of Laban and the Yerman Thummim and the Miraculous Director would have been in context for Joseph in his day, but they're definitely not in context of, of our own, at least these kinds of, these kinds of uh, artifacts. And I, and I do think they would factor in a major distraction to the going forward of, of the work in the last days. And I can see even why they're not even on display or they aren't even revealed to us now. But we do know that in verse two, it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of them, even by that faith, which was had by the prophets of old. And after you have obtained faith and have seen them with the, your eyes, then shall you testify of them by the power of God. I, I think this is interesting of just how this would strengthen their testimony of Christ. I don't know how this would strengthen the testimony of Christ. I don't even know if that's really the point, but that the Lord is looking for a witness for this particular work. Going back to the previous chapters, this is the Lord's work. He just needs someone. He's going to need someone right here, right now to do this thing. Will you do this thing? You'll do this thing. Okay, good. I'm going to show you this thing. 
You're going to testify of it. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, good. Get it done. And and so I see that a lot of this is transforming from Joseph and David and Martin and Oliver were doing something to Jesus is doing something with his own work because it's his own gospel and he's got to get this done. And he's using these few people to get it done in this, in this particular thing. And then when I look at it to say that this is Jesus's work, it almost just accepting and focusing on that almost just forces us to have to build and to expand the influence of what Jesus is doing to bring his own kingdom to pass. As Latter-day Saints, we we have this claim that, you know, this is God's only one true in church. But yet, the prophets, seers, and revelators have cons- pretty consistently over time said that he influences many people outside of this church for his work. It's just too big for this church to be able to accomplish all by themselves. God's work and glory surpasses the parameters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, they function, the church serves the function that it needs to serve. It is what it, it says it is. But it's not God's only work. Right. To think it, to, to think it is, we would have to have a really narrow view of God. But this is Jesus' work. We just get to be a part of it. The church is one part of that. It's, one, it's a big part of it. But it's just a part of it. We, we kind of got to expand our mind a little bit beyond that. You know, I'm seeing verse 4 as as a really good context to what's going on here as well. And this you shall do that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed. You know, I think we it's possible we could look at that word destroyed as, okay, you need to give these witnesses so that other people know that you're there and they won't come attack him and, and kill him, right? <laughs> but uh, that, I don't think that's what the destroyed here means. Joseph Smith... Okay, this is June 1829. Joseph Smith hasn't even turned 24 years old yet. He's 23, okay? Like, I was still trying to figure out, like, how to pass classes in college at 23. <laughs> like, <laughs> and this guy is, is doing all this stuff, right? It's, it's an enormous burden that he's feeling right now. And, and we know how heavy it weighs on him from his experience with the lost 116 pages. And even though he has learned and progressed from that, it's still this enormous burden to him. In fact, there's an account of him after he learns that he can show the plates to these three people. He's ecstatic. He comes in to his, his father and his mother. He's like, oh, he, he, he exclaims, you, you won't believe what's happened. I, the Lord says I can show them to other people. And he's just like, you know, so relieved that he can share this with other people, right? That it's not his alone to bear this witness and say, no, I really have seen these. And everybody else is like, look, we believe you, but you know, it kind of would be nice to really know at some point, Joseph, you know, there's in the back of their mind, there's still always this, yeah, but he could be sort of fooling us. And so Joseph Smith has this enormous burden on him of being called a charlatan, right? And to be able to, to sort of divest himself of that, or, or at least, you know, spread the load to these others, he really needed that. So, that's this is his, the Lord's blessing to him to to be able to spread that load. Other people can be witnesses of this, so that you're you're not cr- 
crushing under this. Yeah, I really think this verse also goes to show a little bit about how God is working with us in this temporal sphere. Can God save Joseph from destruction in any given time? The answer is mm-hmm. yes, he can. If Joseph is is in danger, can God be like, poink, and, and like, you know, everything turns to daffodils and, and he's completely safe, you know, barring that he's not allergic to daffodils. Yeah, <laughs> everything can perfectly work to to that way that God needs it. But why is God doing it this way? Why is God allowing it to where he's saying, listen, I'm going to have you be witnesses so Joseph's not destroyed? I mean, it doesn't make sense when we think of just like an omnipresent God and like an omnipowerful God who can just come down into take care of everything that he wants to. I mean, come on, we Mormons believe in this uh, third Nephi 9 and 10 Jesus who completely indiscriminately killed and destroyed all sorts of people. God's got the power to do all sorts of stuff apparently, right? How can he not protect Joseph from just doing whatever he wants Joseph to do? And so I think these are the, you know, some of these questions that we begin to ask ourselves. And why is he getting these people to testify with Joseph so they don't destroy Joseph? And I think it has something to do with what this life is about, the experiences that we're supposed to have in this life. Yes, of course God could be able to save and preserve and protect Joseph from any threats. But the types of experiences that we are supposed to have, this is the way that we go about doing it. Now, I, I don't have the answer for what that kind of what that kind of experience is. It's bearing one another's burdens, right? You know. Yeah, at least in part. Yeah, that's 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 a great part to it. And so, yeah, God can do whatever God wants to do. He's he's all powerful. But the fact that he's doing it this way, I think if we spend a little bit of time thinking about this, there might be some really good things we find there, especially from our own suffering. Why does God allow me to go through this suffering? Why doesn't God come down to save me? Why why can't God just be there and just make this go away? Does he not love me? Does he not does he want me to suffer? Why does he why is he doing it this way? Well, first of all, I don't think God's actually up there doing like pushing buttons on our on our pain, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the way this works. That's kind of our own pain field perceptions. But to see God in a new way. These are basically questions that I ask myself that lead me to seeing God differently. So these are questions that I ask myself and kind of what I call my own personal repentance process. I see that God can do certain things, but he's not. He could do it in a certain way, but he's doing it this way. Why? And then sitting with that and seeing what happens. Yeah, I think that's a useful exercise, so to speak. And so I love how that verse finishes out, that I may bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men in this work. You know, just what we were saying because his, his righteous purposes are to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. And so that is that he may involve us in his work so that we can understand who he is and how he works. And the more that we can be involved in that work, the more that we can understand how he works and come to a knowledge of who he is and our relationship with him. The rest of this section here has some, some neat little parts in it. You know, was it last podcast or one before we talked about the, some of the translate, the process, the translation of the Book of Mormon about how, you know, we, we have this, um, idea that uh, there's the gold plates and I, I'd have to go back and look where this concept came from, but that something like two thirds of them are sealed, right? And Joseph Smith never touched that part. And then the, th- there's the third part that uh, was translated, but, you know, a good section of it, 116 pages 
were lost. And so that was something like a fifth of, uh, so if we, if we took our current Book of Mormon and we added 25% to it, then that would be, you know, like the Book of Lehi, right? And so we only have four fifths of what the third of those gold plates are. But there was some hints in previous sections that Joseph Smith didn't even translate all of that, that there were some parts of that that were left untranslated. And so we have here at verse six, he has translated the book, even that part which I have commanded him. <laughs> so there's always these little hints that like, there's more if you're ready for more. And we're not, you know, we're just not. <laughs> <laughs> which is, we're just not. You know, and, and a lot of what, you know, everybody was like, I want to know what's in there. I want to, and there's a part of me that's like, it's that little kid that gets excited about new stuff too. But if I'm really honest with myself, I just, I don't, I don't think I know enough about what I have. And, and the idea of having more and to be responsible for more right now would kind of give me anxiety. So I'm really just, I'm happy with what we have right now. And in working towards having more. I'm not telling the Lord I wouldn't I wouldn't want more and I'm not uh, trying to be apathetic about it. Yeah, he's not hinting at it too much, you know. It's just right. a little bit here. And <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, next week as we get in, we're going to be talking about section 18 and 19. Again, these are scriptures, revelations rather, that are coming to Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer in section 18, and then to Martin Harris in section 19. So we're going to continue on with these these fine gentlemen and to see what they have. Yeah, these ones can get intense here. I, uh, we're we're going to have some some meat to deal with here and some some concepts to wrestle with. I think. Yeah, I know. I was I was reading through them a little bit earlier, and I'm like, this is going to be fun. So, well, good. Well, do you have anything else to say, Ben? I do not. Awesome. Well, thank everybody for sticking with us and uh, and leave us a comment, uh, like, subscribe, share, and uh, if you found it valuable. And until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan, and I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you.